Frost wrote some of the words I read in seventh grade on the cusp of adult thinking, startling me as I realized how powerfully words can create imagery. These are from a poem called Birches. Often you must have seen them after, seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust, such heaps of broken glass to sweep away you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. This straightforward beauty was appealing because I am primarily a visual learner. My self-taught lessons are about what I see, and Frost paints stunning word pictures. I would discover this was just the surface of his intentions. To me, the Birch's lesson is about the process of climbing a tree, letting one's progress upward represents one's advancements through accumulating years. The tree stands for one's lifespan. This literary device that uses implicit comparison is called metaphor. Gaining the top of the tree means one has attained the end point of one's life. When he gets us up there, mentally, Frost shares a happy thought. Wouldn't it be nice if instead of dying, one's weight forced the tree into an arc, bending the tree down to touch earth again, to then hop off and start over? I was probably 12 at the time. I thought the story the poem wove was clever, but I'd not yet been touched by anyone's end of life. I knew I would die, seriously dwelling on it, could be left for later. I'd lived in downtown Lawrence, Mass, until I was halfway through my 11th year, then moved to a more rural setting bounded by wooded trails leading to a small pond. With what was left of that summer, I explored my new surroundings. I already loved the rural setting of my dad's mother's disused farm in Methuen, where I sometimes got to search for wildlife in her field. Frost caught my attention enough to read his poetry on my own. I took North of Boston out of the library and read the frontispiece, The Pasture, then skimmed the book, pausing at some poems, leaving others as taking too much effort. Again, I appreciated Frost's cleverness at putting The Pasture first because it seemed to be a friend's invitation to accompany him on simple chores as well as to read together. The words were pretty. Though I'd met the idea of metaphor, clearly I'd grasped it incompletely. Later, I discovered the deeper meaning of the pastures lines jolted awake by them, my world suddenly more complex. The road teens travel, though I'd not expected an old man I didn't know to guide me. I'm going out to clean the pasture spring 
I'll only stop to rake the leaves away and wait to watch the water clear I may. I shan't be gone long. You come too. At first reading, I'd paired these four lines with fun, playing in water until getting home scolded for soaked shoes. If I'd realized frost intends the spring, spring to stand for the source from which all life flows and in which we try to stay afloat, the current sometimes muddied by what's sullying it, like leaves clog a spring, I might have been more wary to accept his invitation. About the second stanza, here are Marion Montgomery's words describing that Frost, quote, suggests dreadful implications, the tottering calf, and has a shocked sense of the helpless cruelty of things. I'm going out to fetch the little calf that's standing by the mother. It's so young it totters when she licks it with her tongue. I shan't be gone long. You come too. The word fetch might as well be wrench away. Surely this permanent separation was anguished for the calf. I'm filled with empathy. Think of veal and squirm inwardly. Life is harsh, so full of beauty, so full of pathos. Ouch. Did I reread with my newfound clarity? Well, yes, the young have never been able to resist drama, have they? And what is the first poem uh, in North of Boston? <clears throat> Why, Mending Wall. And what's all this all about besides fixing a wall? All those stones that diagram New England, almost a quarter of a million miles of them. It makes me wonder what you know of Frost's early life. He was born in San Francisco, no walls there, but his father died when Frost was 11. The family moved to Lawrence to live with his paternal grandfather by financial necessity. His mother taught English at a school in Methuen. Frost would graduate from Lawrence High School in 1892. Molly Foster was in his class. She was my grandmother. When she told me, I was flushed with celebrity for a satisfying moment. Then my bubble burst as she continued. He was a difficult person, moody, and petulant, disappointing me with her judgment. Eleanor Miriam White, Frost's co-valedictorian, thought more of him. They married in 1895. The wall figured in Frost's life later, where it crossed his farm in Derry, New Hampshire, 16 miles north of Lawrence, 50,000 strong then, past Salem, up the dirt road that was Route 28, connecting him more loosely to the bustle and chaos of the immigrant city. Frost farmed the land in Derry from 1902 to 1912, then sold this inheritance from his grandfather's and mother's deaths and moved to England. He was 38 years old. The world then characterized him as a failed apple grower and poultry producer, 
sometimes cobbler, sometimes teacher, poet. His wife had finished college before she married. Robert had attended Dartmouth and Harvard, but hadn't completed a degree. His poetry had been published beginning in 1894 as single poems only. He despaired of finding a publisher for a poetry collection, <clears throat> suffered from depression, and the hope of making his living as a writer was wearing thin. I wonder how he could escape depression anyway. <clears throat> Their first child, a son, Elliot, had died from cholera in 1900. <clears throat> Their sixth child, Eleanor, named for her mother, died in 1907, a few weeks after her birth. Robert and Eleanor and their four remaining children embarked for England in 1912. There, life was better. Frost formed friendships with well-established poets and published his first volume of poetry the very next year, and another in 1914. The second was our acquaintance, north of Boston, and it received international acclaim. And so, as World War I broke out in Europe, <clears throat> the Frosts returned hurriedly to America. That new volume of poetry that befriended the world, north of Boston, was republished here, and America got to hear about Frost's Wall. Bending Wall to me is about all boundaries. Boundaries separate us. Frost's choice of imagery is brilliant. The weight of stones, so concrete a model for the rocky trail of thought, he finds it imperative we walk down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, he warns, and later repeats, hinting, this is the meat of the premise. When the neighbor offers up his fa father's homily, good fences make good neighbors, Frost at first is patient and talks of planting notions, but as he thinks aloud as to why we should revisit the past solutions, his patience fades. Frost knows ideas must be considered and embraced within an individual's work of survival and responsibility. He is prodding us to develop our own righteous inner truths as he considers this neighbor and what is required to believe in him. Frost loses faith and gives in to melancholy. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only and the shade of trees, telling us why, in case we miss this point. Because he will not go beyond his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well. Why do poets write? That poem carries more than a glimpse into what the failed farmer thought was a useful occupation. Boundaries, walls, ideas, recurring like poems, we have not the sense to ponder. It's a big poem. No wonder the collection established Frost's reputation. 
Listen to a quote from Frost during the time he taught at Amherst and Middlebury Colleges. He tells us, quote, unless you have had your proper poetical education in the metaphor, you are not safe anywhere. Frost was a man of contradictions. Listen to a few observations of his biographer, Jay Perini. He was a loner who liked company, a poet of isolation who sought a mass audience, a rebel who wanted to fit in. A homebody, he traveled more than any other poet of his time. Four separate volumes of his poetry would win the Pulitzer Prize. We in this valley share with him roads, walls, brooks, farms, histories, and sense of home. His thoughts companion me more than 55 years after his death. I'd like to share more of his poetry with you, but there isn't time. I hope you found a bit of comfort in finding the frustration of our current political scene addressed in the poetry of one of the Merrimack Valley's thinkers. We've not even touched on the compassion with which he portrayed his fellow man. You might want to read an article on the internet by Mr. Perini entitled, Listening for God in Unusual Places, The Unorthodox Faith of Robert Frost. Frost grew up among immigrants. In 1885, almost every other Laurentian was foreign born and Frost worked in a textile mill after high school. I don't know how that figured in his development, but I am certain he had little patience assigning worth based only on the acquisition of wealth and power. My favorite Frost poem, The Death of the Hired Man, deals with that, but it might make a tedious sermon, one I wouldn't enjoy writing and none of us would want to hear. So it's August, the blueberries are in, and Sandra and I would like to leave you with a frost poem we hope will make you smile. In it, two different kinds of folks interact. Their interplay is a brief essay on rights, manners, and civility. I think frost is nudging us to question, what's mine, what's yours, and what's ours? Blueberries. You ought to have seen what I saw on my way to the village through Mortensen's pasture today. Blueberries as big as the end of your thumb, real sky blue and heavy and ready to drum in the cavernous pail of the first one to come, and all ripe together, not some of them green and some of them ripe. You ought to have seen. I don't know what part of the pasture you mean. You know, where they cut off the woods. Let me see, it was two years ago, or no, can it be? No longer than that. And the following fall, the fire ran and burned it all up but the wall. Why, there hasn't been time for the bushes to grow. That's always the way with the blueberries, though. There may not have been the ghost of a sign of them anywhere under the shade of the vine. Get that kind out of the way, you may burn the pasture all over until not a fern or grass blade is left. 
Miss Hart explains Conjurer's trick. It must be on charcoal they fatten their fruit. I taste in them sometimes the flavor of soot. And after all, really, they're ebony-skinned. The blue's but a mist from the breath of the wind, a tarnish that goes at the touch of a hand and less than the tan with which pickers are tanned. Does Lawrence know what he has, do you think? He may, and not care, so, and so leave the chewing to gather them for him. You know what he is. He won't make the fact that they're rightfully his an excuse for keeping us other folk out. I wonder if you didn't see Warren about. The best of it was that I did. Do you know I was just getting through what the field had to show and over the wall and into the road when who should come by but a Democrat road of all load of all the young chattering Lauren's alive, but Lauren the fatherly out for a drive. He saw what did he do? Did he frown? He just kept nodding his head up and down. You know how politely he always goes by, but he thought a big thought. I could tell by his eye, which being expressed might be this in effect. I have left those there berries, I shrewdly suspect, to ripen too long. I am greatly to blame. He seems to be thrifty, and hasn't he need, with the mouths of all those young Laurens to feed? He's brought them all up on wild berries, they say, like birds. They store a great many away. They eat them the year round, and those they don't eat, they sell in the store and buy shoes for their feet. Who cares what they say? It's a nice way to live, just taking what nature is willing to give, not forcing her hand. I wish you had seen his perpetual bow in the air of the youngsters, not one of them turned, and they looked so solemn, absurdly concerned. I wish I knew half what that flock of them know, where all the berries and other things grow. Cranberries and bogs and raspberries on top of the boulders through mountain and when they will crop. I met them one day, each had a flower stuck into his berries, as fresh as a shower, some strange kind. They told me it hadn't a name. I've told you how once, not long after we came, I almost provoked poor Lauren to mirth by going to him, of all people on earth, to ask if he knew any fruit to be had for the picking. The rascal. He said he'd be glad to tell if he knew. But the year had been bad. There had been some berries, but those were all gone. He didn't say where they had been. He went on, I'm sure, I'm sure, as polite as could be, he spoke to his wife in the door. Let me see, Mame. We don't know any good burying place. It was all he could do to keep a straight face. Or her 
pastor who said I was keeping the bird away from its nest, and I said it was you. Well, one of us is. for complaining. It flew around and around us, and then for a while we picked, till I feared you would wander a mile, and I thought I had lost you. I lifted a shout, too loud for the distance. You were, it turned out, for when you made answer, your voice was as low as talking who stood up beside me now. We shan't have the place to ourselves to enjoy, not likely, when all the young Laurens deploy. They'll be there tomorrow, or even tonight. They won't be too friendly, they may be polite, to people they look on as having no right to pick where they're picking. But we won't complain. You ought to have seen how it looked in the rain, the fruit mixed with water in layers of leaves, like two kinds of jewels, a vision for thieves. until we are together again. May there always be words to comfort and sustain us, to reassure and restore us, to give us direction and to bring us hope. And may we realize our own words given away may bless another as we have been blessed. Blessed be and amen.